Hey, hey, Aaron, I have this box. You want to know what's inside it? Sure. It's a box of bad things. I'll put you in it and close the lid. Fuck. <laughs> oh, shit, there's a fungi zombie. <laughs> anyway, welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by movie monster boy Aaron and me, the cowardly co-host. Derek, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. This week, we conclude Dead Boy Summer with a, a bunch of fungi zombies, like I mentioned earlier. Yep, it's going to be Dead Girl Summer for this one, as we cover the girl with all the gifts from 2017. So let's just put in that Dead Boy Summer awesome jam. One last time. Yeah, so yeah, um, interesting enough that this is going to be the only zombie movie we've done this summer that really has no ties whatsoever to Romero. All of them, including even Zombie 2, had a tie directly to, to Romero. This is kind of the only one out of left field. Yeah. And we'll get into we'll, we'll get into why we chose this one um, and why we think it fits for Day of the Dead. But uh, before we do that, like usual, it's just Aaron and I, so it's going to be us talking about recommendations. So this is our recommendation section in which we talk about other horror media we've consumed lately, be it other movies, TV, books, video games, comics, etc. So hopefully you listeners out there can hear something that you want to try, maybe read or watch or play. So Aaron, I think you told me off air that you only have one uh, recommendation this week, so you're keeping it light. Correct. So we went and saw Nope. Oh, it's a big one. (laughs) Okay, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, Heather and I went and saw it. Sadly enough, probably going to be the last movie that we see here in Jackson before we move, and who knows when we'll have time to like actually go see a movie again, but uh, glad we squeezed this one in while we still had the chance. Um, Obviously, this is Jordan Peele's new movie starring Daniel Kaluuya, Kiki Palmer, Michael Wincott, Brandon Perea, Stephen Yen, and Keith David. What a good fucking cast. Oh, the cast is amazing. Yeah, the cast is amazing. Really? So, first off, initial reaction is... Yeah, how'd you like it? I liked it a lot. I really dug it. I am still not 100% sure how to square some stuff in it, but I think I have a pretty strong take. And honestly, it's kind of tough to talk about what I think this movie is trying to do without really digging into spoilers, and I know you haven't seen it yet. So, you know, I'll kind of beat around the bush a little bit. But overall, I enjoyed the hell out of it. It's way more Jaws than I was expecting uh, as far as like the tone and feel of it. Of course, it is definitely UFO related, um, as we kind of found out in some of the later marketing. So you mentioned Jaws, and I would be reminisced to say, is there a line where they see an alien and it goes, lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a Donald's eyes? Um, let's just say he commits to the bit in terms of less is more. Put it this way, we see a lot of the UFO, but 
we don't necessarily see a lot of the details stuff of it necessarily. It is still obfuscated for very specific reasons. So yeah, the movie centers on a family of horse trainers who suddenly in their valley discover uh, weird happenings. And they want to try and catch this anomaly on film for further fame and fortune and to keep the family farm afloat after their father is tragically killed right at the beginning under weird circumstances. Like I said, I I really enjoyed it. So the characters Emerald and OJ are brother-sister? Correct. Okay, gotcha. So yeah, that said, this is his longest movie. Yeah, it's over two hours from what I read. Yeah, this is also one that doesn't really lay out the game that it's playing until a good bit later. There is also a B-plot to the story that I definitely struggled with trying to kind of piece together what the purpose of it is and how it fits into the larger narrative. I think I have a pretty good handle on that now in the sense that the movie is very much about how modern audiences just require extreme spectacle, exploitation, and everything has to be some kind of extreme, I've never seen that before, wonder, or we just kind of pass it off like the next whatever that kind of comes along. Right. I also think, like all of his movies, there is definitely some interesting historical racial stuff going on commentary certainly about the film industry i'm trying to think of the best way to maybe say this where it's not getting super spoily but i think a lot of the movie really does have to do with the fear of not white people per se specifically but the idea of whiteness and homogenization and that kind of creating erasure within different groups and cultures and people and chucking their history and their legacy out the window in order to kind of make everything a very smooth creamy finish you know what I mean well and let me lob this idea up to you and tell me if this is kind of what you're getting at because one of the things I did notice even just from the trailers just the casting itself when you think historically in film and TV when we think in pop culture when characters like one that like runs a rodeo type setting and, and characters that run a horse farm in the middle of nowhere you think white hicks basically typically right whereas in this case the casting is not that even down to steve yoon being cast he looks like a rodeo host i don't know exactly what he does kind of and that's one of those things where yes why would an asian man in california knowing the history of the asian population in that state why would he be putting on this whole cowboy act yes there is definitely something specific happening there yeah yeah it felt very purposeful by jordan peele like with the casting choices he made and but like not only the casting choices but the way he wrote those characters that he casted with these specific people in mind yeah there is definitely something going on there and again i could kind of go on and on about about it it's hard to do that without getting into spoilers but there is definitely imagery in the movie that is evocative of the kkk there is imagery in the movie that is evocative of hollywood entertainment industry as a literal machine and kind of what that does to people over time 
I think that there is a lot going on under the surface. So it begs a rewatch. Oh yeah, for sure. Especially just for like a lot of the background details. I don't think that this is one like Get Out, like we talked about, where you go back once you know what the twist is, and you see all these things you didn't see the first time. This movie just has a lot of very purposeful bits and pieces of things thrown in that are definitely not accidental. There are lots of posters hanging up in the farmhouse for movies like El Diablo and Buck and the Preacher. There is lots of very specific music references and film history references and things like that. So I'm I'm very curious. I've seen the music references. They're pretty cool, but also like interesting. Yeah. I'm very, very curious just to kind of dig into those things a little bit more and just hear like what other people's opinions are. We did talk a little bit off air about this, like after you saw it. And there's one character specifically that's constantly wearing band t-shirts and it's anything from like the Jesus lizard to like rage against the machine to like ween or earth. Yeah. Even dude, I, w- I would fucking love to like just sit down and talk music with Jordan Peele. Yeah. It's a lot of stuff you and I listen to actually. Yeah. Like. So yeah, I'm, I'm very curious about a lot of these things. And at the end of the day too, a lot of it could just be like, yo, I had this weird notion for, you know, this thing. I, I know that that's the case because I, I, actually saw a tweet from him from like 2014 i want to say it literally lays out what the b subplot is in the movie and i was like okay yeah there's no accident that that's in there and i don't think that he just backwards maneuvered that subplot into this story as a way to like get that out onto the screen in a way that fits enough that he can get away with it there's a reason why that's in there that i have a good hunch about like i said i just without completely going into spoilers and i don't want to spoil that for you that's something that we can talk about offline yeah but, like it's interesting and i'm very curious to kind of see what the discourse of this looks like and above all as much as people gripe about how there are no original ideas in Hollywood anymore. Superhero movies are taking over, blah, blah, blah. That's all we get now. Why do we not have XYZ types of movies nowadays? Why do we not have movies that challenge the audience? This movie is literally all of those fucking things. Like, this is an original idea from a very fresh and interesting perspective It's very, very, very competently made. And at least you fucking talk about it afterward. It's not the kind of movie that you leave the theater and you're like, okay, yeah, sure. And that was fine. And then you fucking forget about it by the time you get home. (laughs) You know, you're still going to be talking about that movie for a while afterward. And that's way more than what you can ask for nowadays. So like as much as critics are open and cool with this movie, like I definitely have heard some general audience people being like, I didn't understand it. That was dumb. It was too long. It was boring. I didn't get it. I I am a little bit of like a superhero simp, but like even I am recognizing that it's like now just turning into like, oh my God, I can't believe Globbly Gluke showed up in the post credit scene. That was cool. And that's about it. So yeah, no, this is like the exact movie that needs attention to show that original ideas can thrive. 
Two questions I did have for you that I can shy away from possible spoiler territory. One, do you think his horror movie fanboyness came out at all in this movie, like in terms of shots and stuff? Because I saw that tweet where like someone's just like, has any horror director in history made three back to back movies that were hits? And like he tweeted back being like, how dare you like talk poorly of John the great John yeah. Carpenter because yeah, yeah. he's such a John Carpenter fan. Like, do you feel like there was a lot of that? Like, because we talked about that oh. in Get Out, how like he nerded out and Get Out. He's like, yeah, that's my John Carpenter shot, like in the beginning and everything. As far as specifically referencing certain movies or shots or whatever, like I didn't look at it that deeply, but 100%, there are moments where he's flexing his horror muscles in small ways where it feels very specific and kind of measured and paced out but then it switches over to moments of big epic more than what you can really take in visually emotionally and comprehend what you're looking at at times the scope of this movie is super interesting just by how large and by how small the movie gets that takes a very very specific skill set to really pull that off yeah so yeah i i definitely thought he was flexing his horror muscle pretty hard but i wasn't really paying deep enough attention to say like oh yeah that's a jaws shot you know what i mean yeah yeah now the second question i had is do you think this movie will wind up being even more divisive than us because like i even listened to like your john brennan interview that you did for our, our minisode three check that out listeners if you haven't listened to it yet but you guys did touch a little bit about get out and us and you talked about how us is very divisive with nope being out right now everybody of course is talking about get out and us and the general consensus has always been oh get out's a masterpiece it's one of the best pieces of writing ever period yeah. you know what a great debut and then the consensus on us just seems to be like what the hell was this what yeah, is this other like, lo- love it or hate it yeah. it's too weird the story doesn't track the tone is everywhere you know like the consensus on us is definitely very divisive I don't think this movie will be as divisive necessarily, but I think a lot of people are going to discount some of the layers that this movie has thematically because the, like, on-the-surface story is so big and bold. Yeah, it doesn't fucking help that it's getting review-bombed on top of all that, too. So it's hard to, like, sift through all the bullshit and the racism to, like, get actual, like, decent opinions, I feel like. Because I, I feel like even when Us came out, we weren't quite in this at this stage of contrarian, like, let's go against what the critics want or, like, anti-wokeness, whatever bullshit with a. Uh, review bombs and everything because like i mean again this is me like putting on my uh my conspiracy theory hat for a second like even when you kind of scroll through like rotten tomatoes it's very like interesting to see specific movies that critics pan but then have like an 80 to 90 percent plus user rating it's like oh this is louis ck's bullshit comedy movie that makes fun of wokeness or whatever of course it has you know an 85 percent user rating shit like that but i will say i don't pay attention to like aggregate necessarily right probably for the good reason when i'm looking at reviews like i actually look up 
reviews. I don't like specific reviews. I don't yeah. bother with fucking aggregators and numbers and that kind of thing because that's all always going to be manipulated, you know. So I'm just fucking overusing that as a barometer, and I have been for a while. I used to use it as a barometer, just as an easy way to be like, what should I check out? Now it's it's just gotten so toxic that I have to do the same. There are just specific reviewers and people I trust. And honestly, it's going back to like trusting word of mouth from you even specifically. Well, yeah, you should always trust me. Yeah, (laughs) but like certain friends of mine who I know have good tastes or at least their tastes line up with mine. I take their opinion seriously because it just it's kind of the way it is right now. I think word of mouth now is with between friends and everything is maybe arguably better than those aggregate websites. But yeah, yeah, Nope sounds fascinating. I really I want to see it. I'm excited for us to cover us and probably eventually down the road years from now cover Nope. Jordan Peele is just always fun to talk about. I mean, even the shit he was doing in Key and Peele was so good. Get Out was one of my favorite episodes that we've recorded, like just experiencing that movie for the first time and talking with you and Kelly about it. It's a masterpiece. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed this one and I'm looking forward to what he does next. So I'm curious to see what the discourse looks like once people have had time to actually sit and think about the movie a little bit and i definitely want to be able to talk about this movie in depth still too fresh without having to worry about spoilers as much later yeah so you know maybe yeah this is something that we'll cover you know maybe sooner rather than later but i do want some time to kind of sit with it and see how it hangs around right but yeah i i enjoyed it and then that's all i've got for this episode so it's pretty pretty light with us in the middle of trying to get moved so I got a handful of recommendations, but first off, I want to shout out somebody. We had a fan, a listener, reach out to us on our uh, Facebook page, and this is in regard to recommendation I made. I think it was back on our Zombie Zombie 2 episode, the Fulci movie, so just a couple episodes ago. Um, one of them was on the comic miniseries Rain by Joe Hill. This guy named Paul, I'm just going to say his first name. I don't know if he wants his last name blasted out there, but he commented on our post for our, our episode on Zombie zombie 2 saying that it's actually based off of a novella that joe hill wrote in a uh, collection called strange weather which collected four of his novellas okay i've actually heard of that now that you say that yeah yeah and so like he basically made a comic out of his novella I asked Paul, like, I told him I had no idea. Thank you for sharing. And I asked him, you know, like, what did he think of the ending? Thinking back on it, I'm still not a fan of that ending. And he said that the ending of the novel is actually a little bit different, but it's still too explainy. Like, it still gives away, like, what's going on when it doesn't really need to. He did say that Rain, while it has the neatest premise from like that kind of apocalypse in the collection, it's probably the weakest actual execution. And he recommended a couple other stories that are in that strange weather collection that he thought were better than Rain. So I want to check that out because I do like Joe Hill's writing. Yeah, thanks again, Paul, for taking the time to comment. And I hope you enjoy listening to us. And listeners, if if you ever have any comments you want to make about any of our recommendations, feel free. Either like message us or uh, you know comment on like the posts whenever we post a new episode on on our facebook and everything so appreciate it so now on to my actual recommendations uh let's start with a comic called west of sundown it's being put out by vault comics there are about four or five issues out now getting kind of close to wrapping up the first arc i really dig the covers speaking of 
old genre from the 70s, 80s horror movie posters. A lot of the covers kind of have that feel to them, but they also like mix in splashes of neon blues and purples, kind of like Bloodstained Teeth that I mentioned back on a recent episode. But uh, West of Sundown, actually, ironically, like Bloodstained Teeth is about a vampire. I really like the setup. This is definitely a Western horror comic because it takes place in the 1800s. It follows a guy named Dooley who at the start of the comic is digging graves in 1861 he is an irish immigrant basically a mercenary who is a civil war soldier it's not really his war but he immigrated to america and now he's kind of stuck fighting in this war sure he's in the middle of digging graves there's even been innocent lives taken during a certain battle like he's burying like a little boy and all of a sudden as he's burying a body he starts hearing the safety coffin bell because back in the day they used to put bells that would go all the way down into the coffin so if they accidentally buried someone who wasn't dead yeah they could ring the bell and let the gravekeeper know like i'm still alive so they could be dug back up so he like digs up this grave and it turns out to be like this beautiful vampire and her name is constance dare abend uh i'm sure i'm mispronouncing this she basically is just like what are you doing with your life and he's like honestly i don't fucking know this is kind of wild what's going on and she basically is just like be my familiar basically like my partner i can give you purpose in life and so then we fast forward in time they've been together and it is a little bit less of him being a familiar and more being like her human partner like but he basically helps her hunt down barons and rich folk living in the city that have taken advantage of the war and like have just been shitty people sure they like attend parties and stuff together and she's under the guise of this rich countess and he's her manservant like there's even rumors possibly that they're a pair and she's his mistress and all that one night while they're out on a hunt basically they return back to her estate and it's been burnt down. They've been tracked by vampire hunters. Her place of power has been burnt. She's starting to lose her power. They need to go back to the West near the Mexico area where she became a vampire to collect some of her soil so that she can regain her power as they're being chased by these vampire hunters basically across the country. But when they, of course, when they get out there, it's very weird West. They found that there are other supernatural forces that have taken root in that area. Like there's a currently a cult going on that's commanding these cryptids that I think are based off of a real legend. I didn't look them up, but they are kind of like La Chupacabra kind of cryptids. Okay. One of the hunters that are hunting them is basically like a Frankenstein monster and he's convinced himself that like all these skin grafts and shit that are keeping him alive are gifts from God and a sign from God for him to like hunt down vampires. Meanwhile, Dooley still kind of going through this crisis of faith, like a midlife crisis kind of depression thing. Like before all the shit happens to the Constance, the vampire, he's kind of questioning like their relationship and like wondering, is this what I want to do? But I really dig their relationship, him and Constance, because he's He's still human. She's a vampire, but like she actually respects him. It's a really interesting dynamic. Obviously, like men ogle over her, and that's how she like seduces a lot of her victims. And she even like comes on to him on purpose a lot, sort of flirtatious teasing. He's just kind of like, no, like we're good, we're friends, we're partners. But it's an interesting dynamic. They really feel like an interesting pair. And I like a lot of the legend of like how she became a vampire. I'm not going to give away what happened for her to become that way, but it is tied to the land itself uh, where she became one. And it's not completely the same as what you think with vampire lore of like being bitten by a vampire or like being bitten and then sucking their blood to become a vampire kind of thing. It's actually a little bit different. It is a lot more supernatural because there are moments like as they're traveling west where like she needs to feed because she's losing strength as she's getting weaker she's becoming more 
feral and becoming like wraith-like. So it's fucking horrifying when she actually goes hunting. She's trying not to kill Dooley. She's like, if I get too hungry, I'll go full feral and even kill you. It's pretty gory. Interesting take on vampires. Pretty horrific take on vampires, actually. And just I really dig the relationship. It, it's a different take on the familiar vampire dynamic. Yeah. And the artwork's pretty solid. It's a lesser known comic with it being from Vault. I think it's kind of going a little under the radar. I, I don't know if this was in the marketing or in one of the reviews. Think Billy the Kid slash Jesse James meeting Bride of Frankenstein or Frankenstein's daughter or like Dracula or, you know, that kind of stuff. It's okay. just those. I really like that mesh of horror with western and weird west i think that's a cool subgenre that i would like to see more of so i'm really appreciating this comic so yeah interesting shit highly recommend it what was the name of it again west of sundown last recommendation i have and aaron i think you and i can both talk about this one it's a film still doing under the radar like older slashers this one's actually a supernatural or slasher i watched 1979's tourist trap mm-hmm. okay tourist trap Beautiful young people looking for excitement are tricked, terrorized, and trapped. God help those who get caught in the tourist trap. Rated PG. This movie was fucking wild in both good ways and bad. I loved this movie, to be honest with you. So just listeners, if you've never heard of this, basically starts off with this group of young people stumble upon a roadside museum where this lonely guy is running the museum. And it's one of those Civil War type museums where like it's all animatronics and they're all acting out what's happening. And suddenly, like they're starting to get picked off one by one by this killer who has (laughs) psychic powers and is wearing like a doll mask. And he can basically make dolls and mannequins come to life. Dot, dot, dot. And he once he kills someone might be turning the people into real mannequins like the mannequins he commands, like think House of Wax kind of style. There's a lot of fascinating ideas in this movie, and I feel like it's definitely worth a watch. If you're a horror completionist or a gorehound or a slash completionist and you haven't seen Torch Trap, it's a wild movie. It's doing a lot of stuff that you won't see in other movies. I am shocked that this movie didn't become a franchise. I am shocked this movie hasn't been remade in any capacity. If I had any complaint, again, it turned into one of those situations like I wish it either leaned more into like the Texas Chainsaw kind of feel because there's a lot of moments where it feels like Texas Chainsaw like it just feels like you're in these empty gas stations and empty motel and an empty house up by the motel shits run down there's like broken dolls and mannequins everywhere but then at the same time there's also these fucking goofy like really campy as shit moments but yeah. like it tries to walk this line of being both kind of exploitative Texas Chainsaw like you don't know if you're actually watching a snuff film versus really campy as shit a guy like throwing shit around in a room with his telekinetic powers and it doesn't really commit to one or the other like I was kind of shocked there's really no nudity in this movie even it's not as gory as I would expect it to be I mean there are some pretty good kills like one guy gets a fucking pipe impaled in his back and blood pours out of the end of the pipe like that was kind of <laughs> creative yeah there wasn't like really any like super gory moments and I feel like it, it really needed to commit to one or the other but it is a tight watch it's only 90 minutes long I watched it on Tubi for free I thought the ending was interesting I liked the idea of the slasher but like there are also these moments where the slasher basically explains everything to you in one scene and it was just kind of like do we need that but yeah. like you did need that because the movie wasn't showing you otherwise 
I gotta say, the guy who plays the caretaker of the inn and the rundown museum, Chuck Connors, fucking is acting his ass off. And Chuck Connors, I looked him up and he had a wild career because he was like a baseball star. And then he was in a bunch of acting roles. He's most famous for The Rifleman, which was like a huge Western show. And he was in shit all the way back from 1952 up until 2001 and in a ton of TV throughout the years. And he passed away back in 1992. But like he had a, a really long, weird career of baseball and then acting. He's like the best part of this movie. But really where it felt kind of Texas Chainsaw to me is it felt like the group of kids slash young adults that are like basically taking a road trip out in kind of the middle of nowhere is very reminiscent of that idea. Just kind of like wandering on to someplace sure. that you really shouldn't be. It's one of those just right off the road kind of things like Texas Chainsaw, like Psycho. The first kill happens in this abandoned gas station that you probably would, if you're driving in like middle of nowhere, Texas or somewhere, like you'd probably just pass a million times and not think anything of it. There were some really good jump scares actually in this movie. This movie was surprisingly like kind of creepy in many situations, especially because it had to deal with mannequins and dolls. It kind of like was a mix between a slasher and a killer doll movie in some points. Yeah, a little bit. But I had a blast. I thought it was a lot of fun it was very bizarre and i was glad because after i watched it the first thing i thought despite the fact that the serial killer again has psychic powers the first thing <laughs> i thought was had a texas chainsaw feel to it and i remember looking up stuff about it afterwards and there were actually a lot of comparisons to texas chainsaw from critics when it first came out and everything i really enjoyed it have you seen this one Aaron? yes yeah, 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 definitely. I don't know if we'd ever cover it on our show, like, as an episode. Maybe it would be, like, more of a commentary track episode. But I do think this is for sure an underrated gem. I think this is one that kind of sticks out enough. And again, I keep going back to this, but, like, how this never became a franchise or was ever remade is kind of beyond me. Because I feel like there is a lot here you could play with. But, you know, that's just me. Yeah, no, it, it's definitely a really odd duck in a variety of ways. It's, it's very odd. Very odd is, is the right way. To describe it it's one that i've often seen people talk shit about and do laugh tracks for and that kind of thing but like you said i mean there's something weird and idiosyncratic about it that i do appreciate yeah and it does seem like one of those that somebody put a lot of effort and time into that movie and genuinely felt like oh yeah i'm making something special in just the most weirdly i think it's too competent competent but incompetent kind of way you know what i mean yeah it's like a really weird very busy premise because there's like multiple things happening at once but at the same time it's still just competently enough made that like i feel like just kind of shitting on it isn't sincere yeah this is not a deathbed (laughs) yeah this is not one of those kind of horror movies where you can really like destroy it on like mystery science theater or anything like i feel like this is still enough of a competent movie that despite the crazy ass premise and setup it still feels like a pretty solid underrated slasher that i think needs more eyeballs on it it does not feel like a movie from 79 this feels more like a movie that would have came out like the middle of the 80s like after like sure slashers were really well established and everything but the fact that this came out pre-1980 is kind of crazy to me yeah that and the supernatural element was kind of refreshing because i've been you're not expecting that at all with that movie yeah Yeah. (laughs) for sure yeah cool well uh if that's all you got let's go ahead and get into this last movie for dead boy summer like we mentioned we are going to be talking about the british 
post-apocalyptic sci-fi horror film, The Girl with All the Gifts from 2017, set roughly a decade after a complete societal collapse due to the outbreak of a fungal infection that wiped out most of humanity. A group of survivors must travel through the ruins of England and protect a young girl who could be the key to developing a cure to the plague that devastated the world. So here is a sample of what we're getting into. She saved me, and you're still afraid of her? Yeah, and you should be too. I am producing a vaccine, and she is the main ingredient. What am I? Hope. That's what you are. I just want to live. Everyone wants that. She loves you. What is this? The world is falling apart. You can save people, Melanie. You can save everybody. Oh my god. What did you do? Awesome. So yeah, you mentioned 2017. That's when it dropped in the United States, but it was out on like film festivals and in the UK yeah. in 2016. Right off the bat, let's just address the elephant in the room right away. The two things this movie was dripping with influence from, or like coincidentally is very similar. 28 Days Later, sure. this felt very, very much like 28 Days Later. And then this felt a lot like The Last of Us to the point where like it's the same fungus. It's the zombie ant fungus because that's what causes the outbreak in The Last of us uh is the zombie ant fungus starts infecting humans it's the same exact fungus and the girl with all the gifts same exact idea of we need to bring a girl across the countryside to a specific point maybe she'll be the savior she can kind of keep the disease under control just like ellie i noticed that it was based off of a science fiction novel by mike carey and mike yes. carey I know from comic books because I read a lot of his work specifically in the X-Men, but he has worked for pretty much almost all the big comic publishers. But I also saw that his science fiction novel was based off of a 2013 nominated short story, which was written at the same time as the screenplay for the 2016 film. Yes, which I'll talk more about that. But yeah. it's interesting how both things happened at the same time. Yeah, They both date 2013, June 2013 specifically, was when the first Last of Us came out. So they were both in the works at the same time. They both are dealing with a lot of the same ideas. They're both are fungal zombies. Granted, The Last of Us kind of leans a little bit more into the fungal nature because you have the clickers and stuff where like literal like mushrooms are coming out of their zombies' eyes. Whereas in this movie, once they reach a certain stage, like they become part of the flora. Yeah. So there are differences, but as far as the key bones and setup of the premise and plot, it's kind of the same thing. Part of the reason why we decided to go with this movie as our companion to Day of the Dead and, and last movie is it's 2016. So it's fairly modern. It's a fairly modern zombie movie in a different take on zombies than we've been covering. And like Day of the Dead, it deals with soldiers in like a hopeless situation dealing with a zombie like post-apocalyptic world. And so there is a dynamic of soldiers being soldiers along with scientists and a school teacher and this little girl wrapped into it. So there are those similarities between the scientists and the soldiers in Day of the Dead. Sure. There's also the aspect of this zombie zombie apocalypse has already happened yeah but the apocalypse is done we are in the 
post-apocalypse. Which, just like Day of the Dead. Just like yeah. Day of the Dead, yeah. And there is this sense of absolute doom for the human race that is kind of floating over this entire thing. But then this weird sense of hope that maybe this isn't the end for everything, dot, dot, dot. It's just the end for, like, life as we know it. But things yeah. will continue to go on. The Earth will continue to exist without us perfectly fine you know horror newbies right up top like this is definitely one of those zombie apocalypse movies and really like post-apocalyptic horror movies where like there really is no happy ending in a way in the traditional sense that you think is gonna happen it's heavy the whole way through it's tragic it's fucking violent characters are kind of unceremoniously killed off left and right in really like random ways even the zombies themselves are terrifying because they are fast running tackle you zombies and once you get bitten you change within seconds the actual noise that they make like when they get hungry or sense like with that clicking in their jaw again another similarity to the last of us with the clickers is terrifying when they're in that classroom scene and he's proving the point of these children aren't really human yeah and you see for the first time oh shit they are not just children that are being kind of tortured dot 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 or like unfairly prisoned that one kid starts clicking his jaw and making that grunting noise and then the whole classroom starts doing it that scene was terrifying while it it's not jump scare heavy it's a heavy movie it's very foreboding it's very hopeless feeling throughout it's super violent especially in this day and age with kind of the apocalypse being on the back of our minds all the time now yeah it wasn't a fun watch per se it's a good movie it's definitely a great well shot well done movie but it is very like heavy art house horror to me but with zombies i mean you're saying like heavy emotionally heavy thematically yes 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 i would push back on that a little bit just from the standpoint of yeah with the last couple of years state of the country bad shit that's happened in the last few years fucking covid just everything in the last seven years you know there is definitely a sense of catharsis that i think this movie brings by the end yes just everything is fucking done we're just gonna burn it all down just burn it all down and we're gonna fucking start over yeah because the ending is oddly hopeful but not not the way you might have wanted it to be or expected it to be at the end i do feel for the teacher because she's just kind of fucked now in this whole situation like last person on earth kind of fucked i mean she was fucked to begin with so yeah you know like we're saying like this is at least she is doing what she's doing and it actually means something now whereas before it was really truly just fucking theater all for like going through the motions like there was no actual purpose to it before and now there is and it's wildly important the difference is she was the heart she was the one who still treated them like children sure which is interesting too that was something i tackled with what character would i closely relate to in this in this situation if i was in this situation would i be like her and be very empathetic and still treat them like human children would i be like parks who starts off very like soldier just these aren't humans but by the end he has this relationship with her realizes that she still is human kind of like even a little bit of a mental mentorship or would i be like fucking the uh glenn close's character and be like i can save humanity at the cost of kind of damning my soul sure well i would argue for where this story is you missed the window yeah and that's the thing at that point you've 
so fucking missed the window on when that would have been a valid excuse for anything. That's what makes Glenn Close. I don't even call her a bad guy in this movie. She's just the antagonist. Yeah. But like she's sympathetic antagonist. But like that window closed. I agree with you. I think they missed their chance at that even a year prior to. But she's so hung up on this idea that humanity can survive, that she's willing to murder children, even in this kind of hopeless situation. I did think about that a lot, and I do feel like I actually side most with the teacher because I think there are a lot of ways where I think majority of the time, the hungries, as they're called in this movie, um, at least the generation of children that are like hybrid hungries, were very still humid. And like the fact that you can still talk to them and have a relationship with them and all that. Yeah. I still felt like they were just people. They're just this new, not even evolution, just this new symbiosis of people yeah. and, and, and the fungus. It's a full symbiosis with the fungus itself yeah and poor newbies i do think though this is a heavy watch like in the same way as like 28 days later as a like if you have watched the gameplay and story of the last of us i do think it is that same level of heaviness and that same idea at least especially the last of us a post-apocalyptic society like what does this look like But yeah, then the ending is kind of something that is a little bit of a fuck yeah, burn it all down ending that kind of, again, ends on a hopeful note, which we'll get into later because the stuff we've spoiled so far is all pretty much in the beginning of the movie so we haven't spoiled anything too too much we'll talk later about that what happens in the end so anyone who like wants to jump off to watch a movie before then we'll have plenty of time to but but yeah i i really enjoyed this it was it was a very interesting movie i just wish i could have been able to like square in my mind separate it from the last of us i just couldn't because the last of us is one of the best video games ever made in the last two decades and I just I saw the similarities all over the place the entire time sure. I was watching. And I think that's where I'm a little bit different because I still have not actually finished that game. Heather and I started playing that game a few years back and uh, just didn't finish it. But I saw this before that even. Yeah. And it, it really stops at the premise. The premise of transporting this child of hope yeah. across country. Yes, that's there. Yes, the fungus zombies are there. Beyond that, the actual like happenings and like character work and everything is very different yeah so yeah kind of like you were mentioning i guess let's back up real quick this was directed by colm mccarthy he had done a lot of brit tv including doctor who sherlock peaky blinders black mirror he did a movie that i might have brought up as a recommendation very early in our show called outcast which is kind of a dark horror fantasy set in scotland it's basically kate dickey and her son semi-homeless doing black hedge magic and they are kind of constantly like on the run The son falls in love with a girl that lives in this building that they're squatting in. And things kind of go from there. I really dug it. I've not really run into a whole lot of anybody that has seen that movie. But it is super interesting and kind of off the beaten path. So I would definitely recommend checking it out. And uh, his new movie, The Bagman, is currently in production. But as it stands right now, really he just has Outcast and this movie that we're discussing as his only two features. And then TV, yeah. Interesting. I, I thought he did a lot more than that. I didn't look up his uh, filmography, though, before this. Mike Carey, like you mentioned, um, he goes under M.R. Carey most often. 
he adapted this screenplay from his book. It originally started as a short story, like you said, and he started pitching yeah. it around. He pitched it to McCarthy, he pitched it to the producer, Camille Gatton. They agreed to kind of help him develop it further, and then eventually he wrote the book and the screenplay concurrently. And I guess to jump ahead a minute, I re-listened to the audiobook as well, just for this episode. Okay, so you've read the book. Yes, I, I okay. did years ago, and I just did it again. I will discuss that later, but I think now that I've done both in fairly quick succession, I think honestly, in a lot of ways, the movie is maybe a better version of this story. That's what I was seeing a lot of when I was looking stuff up, is that this movie actually is a pretty good adaptation it's a very good adaptation of the story but i think the differences drive the point home a little bit better with the movie yeah because i i read a plot synopsis of the book and i do like the small differences that happen in the movie more Carrie, just as some background, started writing comics with an Ozzy Osbourne biography. Yep. <laughs> Dude, Mike Carrie has written a lot, by the way. Just yeah. FYI. He also wrote a fantasy comic with Pantera. So that's really fucking weird and interesting way to get started. But he went on to write for 2000 AD, which I don't think you can be a British comic book writer and not yeah. write for 2000 AD. Like you mentioned, he wrote X-Men Legacy for Marvel for years. So X-Men Legacy, his run on that is one of the reasons I got back into comics later on. Gotcha. Because if I'm not mistaken, I think in that run of his, he like focuses a lot on like the Gambit-Rogue relationship. Xavier's relationship is basically creating child soldiers and everything like uh, sure. it's an interesting uh run i felt like if i'm remembering his run correctly but i know i've read a lot of his x-men over the years i also saw i didn't realize this aaron i don't know if you saw this but speaking of like horror related stuff he wrote hellblazer for a while like the original yeah. hellblazer the one that went for like 20 volumes or whatever and part of his run on hellblazer included two or three issues with steve dillon as the artist so yeah like dude has written a ton yeah um, he also wrote the Sandman spinoff Lucifer. He wrote like all yep. 75 yep. issues of that. And then he also has his own creator-owned series, Faker, Crossing Midnight, and The Unwritten, um, which have all come out in the last couple of years. So, And, and then he's written some novels as well. Poetry, even. A supernatural series called the Felix Caster series, which is kind of about a supernatural detective. Um, and then there's also the post-apocalyptic Rampart trilogy, which is what he's most recently finished. So yeah, he, he adapted his own story. The movie was initially going to be titled She who brings gifts which is a more literal translation of the name pandora but they changed it back to the book shortly before the premiere yeah i would bet they were changing it initially to avoid the similarity with the title the girl with the dragon tattoo yeah you know if you're yeah typing that, that makes out, sense. it's gonna autofill pretty quick right so i have a feeling that that's maybe why they changed it which that's not uncommon with movie marketing and distribution a lot of times movies will purposely change their original titles to start with a word with a letter that is lower in the alphabet so that way like when you're scrolling through netflix or whatever you'll hit a b title before you'll hit a j title before you'll hit a t title you know so you'll have a lot of movies that purposely start with lower alphabetic letters 
So, you know, that could also be a possibility. But yeah, Carrie wanted a real-world explanation for the zombies, and they discovered the whole idea of cordyceps from the David Attenborough (laughs) documentary Planet Earth, uh, which that's how all of us found out about the fucking horrifying reality of cordyceps. The dead ant fungus. Yeah. Yeah. So for those who are unaware, uh, this is a real pathogen. It's a fungus called Ophiocordyceps unilateralis. Is that a tool album? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It infects ants. Ants! This one particularly infects ants, but there are thousands of different cordyceps variants. But the interesting thing is they are each designed to only infect one specific type of insect. You know, one breed of ants will have their own and then a a moth will have a different one. But in general with ants, it takes over their nervous system. It literally hijacks their brain and their body and it forces them to climb to a nearby tree and go up as high as it can, and then a fucking tendril explodes out of its head to spread more spores across the colony that's right there. There's usually a spore, like, picture a fruit with spikes on it. It's like a shell on that tendril, and that's what breaks open to release more spores. Yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah, you know how, like, a dandelion works, where, yeah, it looks cute and everything, but then, of course, as soon as you, like, blow it, all the little bits and pieces fly everywhere. That's how they propagate, right? It's the same idea here. The, The little tendril is just full of more spores to make more zombie ants and keep propagating itself. Yeah. What's wild is worker ants, if they detect that one in the hive has been infected, they will fucking drag that some bitch out into like the middle of nowhere. Usually two or three workers will sacrifice themselves to just keep dragging this ant away from the colony until that they all just die. Sometimes ants will drag infected ones into a rival ant colony and leave it there just to fuck them over. <laughs> I didn't know that. I've seen some video clips too of worker ants that are on trees or something like that they'll grab the infected one and just fucking yeet it off the edge and just send it into oblivion (laughs) to get it away from the rest of the colony yeah and so again both last of us and and this story take that idea that like what if one of those fungi from that specific pathogen what if it jumped the species barrier into humans yeah Yeah, was able to mutate into humans and it's interesting because some of the development of like the enemies you see in the last of us some of the ones that are further along in the infection those pod things are kind of bursting out of their eyes like out of their heads and they now like detect using their jaw and clicking and they're called clickers in the game because they're blind but they can sonic locate think like a bat with that clicking sound and like as they progressively become more and more infected they like turn into like bloaters that can like throw spores and stuff at you and so like there's that route but then in the girl with all the gifts this is kind of a minor spoiler so i guess we'll get into it right here you find out throughout the movie that like the people who have been infected long enough because you do see some of the zombies that have been infected for a while they have pustule spore kind of looking fungi coming out of their heads and their faces they look fucked up but like if they go on long enough they literally like the ant drop out 
at a certain spot and like the tendril grows up and there's a pod full of spores literally growing out of their eyes and mouths. So it's really haunting when they like they come across it. It's just like a giant vine tree sprouted out of five or six dead zombies. Yeah. Yeah. Like mounds of bodies and all these vines sprouting out of them. Really creepy, but kind of rad imagery for like an apocalypse. Yeah. It's kind of interesting too the idea of the zombies because there's certain points there's no like living things around so they're all just kind of standing there think that idea of the ant mandible death gripping a leaf until like the tendril grows out of it it feels like that's what the zombies are doing they're just kind of standing there waiting for like the tendrils to grow out of them and then they only attack when they realize there are people around yeah it's very eerie to just seeing a crowd of 70 plus people all just kind of standing still kind of swaying a little bit maybe yeah. but Swaying, yeah. swaying a little bit in the breeze or something like that, but that's just kind of it. I love the scenes where they are carefully trying to just walk through that crowd. Yeah, because they have a blocker agent that they can apply like sunscreen that blocks their scent. Yeah, so the Hungries, as they're called in this story, they are attracted by sound and movement, and then they are mostly attracted by body pheromones, endocrine, like sweat, spit, blood, that kind of stuff. So if humans are even like nearby, it could set them off into a frenzy just because the smell of people kind of gets them worked up. And so, yeah, they developed this e-blocker is what they call it. That's designed to kind of neutralize a lot of that. And so, yeah, the moment that you mentioned earlier where Sergeant Park spits on his arm and kind of rubs it in and then holds his arm in front of one of the kids and it kind of completely gets that kid to like flip the fuck out and it triggers the fungus in his head. So all of this together makes for a pretty fucked future all said and done. Like there's not a whole lot of getting around any of this. Even before we like wander out into the wilderness of fucked up societal breakdown that's just taken over by the mindless hungries or fungus zombies. The movie starts off and you're in like this military like prison basically and it's not fully explained at the beginning but all these children are like quarantined in like to these cells that have no windows nothing they're basically in isolation tanks may as well be it's all metal they're all just kind of sealed off and then like every morning they're woken up they have to strap themselves into wheelchairs and then they're wheelchaired into a classroom where they remain strapped in to like learn basically meanwhile you have glenn closest character this weird doctor just going around kind of treating them like subhuman all the soldiers are kind of treating them with fear and like they're not human beings either but like the whole time these kids are just acting like kids for the most part and then when sergeant parks finally does that reveal of like spits on his arm sticks in front of one of the kids and he flips the fuck out and makes like the clicking noises and the grunts which again is terrifying just seeing a little kid there's something with little kids and horror (laughs) horror movies like this are trying to make me be afraid of my own daughter when she gets older but let's just say maybe it's hitting you a little bit more now that you have a kid speaking of which you're also a cat owner and uh (laughs) yeah does the dog die.com not a dog as far as we know although one does get used as basically like a distraction so who knows what happens to that fucking dog does the dog die.com yeah cat gets fucking messed up well I, I wasn't even going there what I was about to say was the movement coach Dan O'Neill based some of the hungry's behavior oh on from cats. videos of cats right like if you ever see a cat looking out the window at it like a bird or something 
something. Cats do that fucking weird thing where they just kind of <laughs> unconsciously yeah. flex and kind of start clicking and grinding their jaws in weird ways. Our cats do that little like eh, 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 almost makes like squeaking like dolphin kind of noises. Yeah. Apparently it's a hunter evolutionary trait of cats where it basically is their attempt at mimicking birds. So when they're out stalking a group of birds and they're on the ground, they're trying to get closer and make that noise to sound like they're tweeting as well until they're close enough to pounce. But yeah, it's very similar to like when they're making that clicking and grunt noise, like when they're hunting. Yeah. It's very cat like in that regard. Yeah. The movement coach also kind of designed all the hungries to kind of be leading by their mouths, right? Like almost like they're being pulled by a hook. Which is why they all kind they of do are, the like yeah. weird Naruto run with their like arms yeah, just like kind of like out to up the Naruto side. run, yeah, yeah. They are going head first. You're absolutely right about that. Yeah, it's it's very interesting watching because it's almost like those weird stabilization videos that you see where you know their head is always perfectly in sync, but their body might be like flailing around in weird ways, but just the head is always beelining toward whatever that prey happens to be. And there are layers set because then you could say like, well. Well, that's the fungus because if it works the same way as it works on the ants but with people and we see all the vines coming out of people's heads yeah that's the fungus and they're going for head first literally and like you see it even early on like when like the base starts getting overrun these fucking zombies like literally eat themselves through windows to get at people and stuff it's very similar to the rage virus zombies of 28 days later yeah i love that fucking shot while they're in the medical facility and they're trying to close the shutter and the assistant walks over and closes the shutter and it's going down and you just see the one dude in the distance like fucking hoofing it and then right as the shutter is kind of almost down yeah he smashes through the window and it's you know it's coming you see it coming but it's still a mild jump scare when it does happen. That is such a good shot. Such a good horror movie shot with zombies. Because you know those like two or three guys that are like booking it are not human yeah and then yeah she gets bit and then she immediately turns you're explaining the rules just on the screen right there of how this works like if you're bit you're gonna turn like within seconds and the way they explained with the children what's going on is interesting and so like yeah you have these they're called like first generation hungries they're like the people that were infected right away and they are basically just besides like running and booking it and trying to kill you and eat you like they are mindless zombies but then you have the children and you find out later on in the movie they're second generation hungries and that you find out that because they were like born into the second generation the fungus has taken more of a symbiotic relationship with them it's not trying to kill them while they still can succumb to like hunger urges and primal urges like that they are basically just kind of superhuman-esque people because they have like enhanced hearing and, and smell at that point as detailed through the main character we follow melanie the movie doesn't necessarily go into all these details but they don't have to rely on oxygen and like actual mechanical breathing as much because the fungus you find that out at the end of the movie yeah yeah the fungus actually metabolizes oxygen for them so they don't really even have to breathe the reveal of that after like glenn close like knocks them all out to try and operate on her and like she's already awake that was a pretty good reveal like where it's like oh fuck yeah the fungus just metabolized all the gas for you there is also the detail that they don't 
have to eat necessarily. After a while, they will begin to like chew on themselves. Yeah. But their bodies digest protein so efficiently that they can go a long, long, long period of time without eating and essentially just kind of go into like a shutdown dormant mode when need be. But their body also processes everything so efficiently like they never actually have to go to the restroom. There's like no excretion whatsoever. Their body uses every bit of what they're taking in i'm guessing that's more explained in the book right a little bit yeah Um, they don't quite go into as many of those details and background as they do in the book but i think the point all still kind of gets across in the movie enough that you know this really truly is the next step in human evolution yeah and so that's where the kind of interesting oddly hopeful but also tragic at the same time because you're witnessing the death of humanity as you know it but then you're seeing the beginning of this new stage of humankind where they're almost evolved and they're almost a better type of human even just physically they are they can metabolize things better they have enhanced smell it's implied that they have enhanced strength and and stuff like that they don't really have enhanced strength per se it's more just at least with the first generation ones they just go berserker so quick and easy yeah i i assumed it was enhanced strength and, and stuff just from when melanie herself so they at a certain point in the movie they get trapped in the hospital and melanie is sent out to like find a way to get the first generation hunger away from the hospital because they don't mess with Melanie because she's a hungry even though she's second generation I thought it was implied that like when she caught the cat and like later on catches the bird she was I guess faster quicker than normal humans and that was how she was able to catch those animals and eat them I don't think that that's necessarily explicitly stated in the book but I mean if you know that could still just be something that's inferred yeah the fungus kind of gives you that sixth sense faster you're just a little more alert i guess so i think the two creepiest reveals in this entire movie not on the screen horror per se but like implied suggested explained two of the creepiest things one was very early on in the movie glenn close's character dr codwell goes and like basically she's doing these logic puzzles with melanie like she keeps throwing these logic puzzles at her and then she has melanie choose a random number yeah once you realize what that means yeah melanie chooses number 13 the next day in class oh where's billy or whatever that kid's name is he he was in room 13 and then later on fast forward you find out caldwell was taking whatever number kid that she selected and killing them and dissecting their brain hopefully like looking for a cure just like kind of in the last of us with the whole premise with the fireflies and what and ellie they think the key to a cure of wiping out this fungus is in the brain and they show that brain in a jar of that kids and you kind of see like mushroomy like kind of grass fungus kind of growing around the brain but it hasn't quite taken over the brain but shows you like this is the symbiosis at work it's like growing on the brain but it hasn't killed the brain and uh i thought that was a really creepy fucking interesting reveal and then the second big reveal is how the second generation of hungries came to be 
Holy shit. Yeah. Talk about some like fears and phobias and themes and all that. Uh fear of childbirth. Yeah, it's basically implied that like all the pregnant women that were like on the OB wards, they all became infected and turned into hungries and passed that on to their neonates in the womb. And the neonates basically ate their way out, inside out, like ate all the organs and ate their way out of the womb. And then because they like are enhanced by the symbiotic relationship with the fungus, were able to just survive and grow up. Yep. Children. Fun time. And like it was implied that the soldiers have been kind of hunting these children down at a very early age and bring them to these bases to kind of study them and to work on the cure from there. But like we had established earlier in the episode, this is very much at the later stages where everything's like the last hopes are crumbling, like the last bastions of humanity in these bases are getting overrun. The window to find that cure, as much as Dr. Caldwell thinks that she can, is closed like in a year or two prior. Like it's just we're kind of in a hopeless situation now. But she is one of those people that's refusing to accept that humanity will go quietly into the night. And whereas, as we see throughout the movie, and as Melanie learns, they have lives, they are people, they aren't just these infected monsters, and it's now time for the new next step. The lines that still stick with me are towards the end when she's like telling the dying Sergeant Parks, I'm sorry it happened, but it's just not yours anymore. It's ours now. Yeah. And that's the whole idea of the movie. Like, it's just no longer yours. Yes, it's scary, but it's now ours. We are the next step. Yeah. Well, it's also just the idea that she knows I am a living, conscious being. She knows that all the other feral children are conscious beings. Yeah, they just haven't learned like she has but they are still children and people. She understands that the only way for them to survive and live and for all this to, like, be over with is for her to, like, fucking end it, you know, definitively. Yeah, so we have the deus ex machina giant fungal growth that's growing up a giant tower where like thousands and thousands of corpses of hungries have gone and laid down at the base and you, you we find this out later on they grew this giant tower of vines that are just full of the spore shells but the, they haven't been able to pop open yet because they haven't been exposed to heat or uh anything and you know they establish a, I, I that's where i saw where the movie was going like yeah that's where even though the ending is interesting and feels kind of original i could see it was going to the ending when they revealed the giant spore tower because it's like oh, oh okay yeah. yeah that's Chekhov's spore tower for sure and as soon as Caldwell says like well that would be the end of humanity as we know it I was like well I know what's gonna happen now yeah <laughs> and it's interesting too because in the book she does learn about a specific plant in the rainforest that produces little seed pods but they're basically useless until there is a brush fire and then every so many years once there is a brush fire all the little dormant seed pods that have been laying around burst open and will then spread and repopulate the area like it's literally like a weird revival mechanism that this plant has developed where even if it's completely destroyed by you know some kind of natural disease disaster the plant still has a way of coming back later you know so that's how she kind of puts the two and two together of fire could be the trigger heat could be the trigger for making these seed pods burst open and it was just kind of a matter of time anyway juxtaposed throughout this entire movie are all the greek myths and like the idea of pandora yeah i wanted to talk about that whole aspect of it as well yeah so i think this is a good sideways into that conversation like how melanie is pandora but you also have the idea of and i forget the goddamn greek myth 
of stealing fire from the gods and giving it Prometheus. to humanity. Prometheus, yeah. And you have the idea of Prometheus, and she is also in this situation kind of the Prometheus because she literally burns it all down to release the spores to end our stage of humanity and begin the new stage of her and the children and them being the, the new humanity. So yeah, like I wanted to kind of pick your brain because Melanie is very interested in Greek mythology. She's constantly wanting the teacher to tell them Greek stories. She's always referencing Pandora's box, like when she threatens Sergeant Parks in the beginning. So yeah, what were your thoughts about all of that? So the whole notion of, you know, how she utilizes the classics, in this case specifically Greek mythology, to make sense of her whole situation, which obviously her situation is this unusual yet epic kind of thing like it's immediately not the same kind of you know world that a child in any other situation would be born into and experiencing but it's kind of all she knows you know we kind of see the mundanity of her getting woken up and getting strapped to her chair and going to class and then going back yeah, right her greeting everybody including the people who think she's a monster like was yeah a pretty good clue into that they're all completely unsettled by this because all they know are the feral, rabid, actual zombie hungries that are outside constantly a threat. Not one that is conscious talking, knows them by name, saying hello, right? So, you know, on one hand, like, this child's entire existence is this very odd, fucked up thing, and she's trying to make sense of that and understand, you know, the obstacles that these people in these myths and these tales have worked through and can she do the same thing? Can she escape whatever situation she's currently in and find kind of the other side of the rainbow? You know, I think it's well utilized in this movie and it's intriguing and it's kind of well thought out. It's simple, but it's not as self-satisfied with its no, uh, cleverness like, in the way that think about how fucking Christopher Nolan names Elliot Page's character in Inception Ariadne and then it's yeah. like you're the fucking architect. Get the fuck out of here. Come on. That's you're not that clever, dude. Yeah, they didn't like name her Pandora literally. Yeah. They didn't make this entire thing completely mirroring a Greek myth. It's definitely its own kind of Greek myth in the in the way it works. It's a journey. Yeah. But it feels like it's just kind of juxtaposed to classics without literally recreating or like throwing in your face, this is the tale of Pandora yeah. again, but with zombies. Well, it's not <laughs> like she passively fulfills that prophecy of this is going to be the story playing out for you, audience. She actively chooses to do that. She actively thinks about what she's heard this entire time and the stories that she knows, and she actively makes the choice to do something similar at the end of the day. It's not just fate playing out that the story happens to be similar and oh isn't it clever you know she's yeah. actively discovering the world for the first time and trying to understand where she fits in and so she's choosing to emulate these stories in these very epic impactful and fateful kind of way she is becoming the new myth for every generation to follow, essentially. Yeah, but it's not like that from the very beginning. It's not like, I'm yeah. going to do this now. It's just the conclusion we get to after she sees everything. But yeah, as much Pandora is referenced in this, I, I do feel like her with the Spore Tower is very Promethean. 
instead. But to you know, there's also like the idea of unleashing the spores, like opening the box up too. Yeah. The other imagery that's all throughout this movie is cats. And it's interesting that you mentioned the idea of them being cat-like, the hungries themselves, because you also had that picture of the cat at the beginning and the end that she has with her. She hunts a cat early on when she's getting hungry and they need to like send her outside to hunt. I love that moment of her staring at the billboard for the cute kitten. Yeah. And Miss Justino is like, oh, would you like to have a cat? And she's like, no, I had one already. Just mouth dripping with cat blood and she doesn't realize it. Yeah. I love how Melanie, despite being very human, the movie does show that she is still also this other kind of thing. Yeah. Because the entire movie, after she hunts, her shirt is just covered with blood and her mouth is just covered well, with blood. So much of that, too, is not that she is something else entirely as much as she just hasn't been properly raised true yeah you're right that's she a good doesn't point. understand what societal expectations and like what's proper how you're supposed to wear clothes and what is and isn't appropriate to say in certain situations like she doesn't know any of that shit because she's not been taught any of that shit because literally no adult that has been around her her entire life has ever tried treated her like an actual child she has just always been this other thing right and so people have either dehumanized her in order to stay detached and treat her like this again like thing or they have specifically turned her into a monster and identify her as that you know but nobody whether they just full-on ignoring her existence or recognizing her existence but branding her as a monster like neither of them have ever bothered to like take the time to fucking say hey this is how the world works you know so it is as much her weird feral nature as it is she just wasn't ever raised like a normal child you know she doesn't know what is acceptable and so speaking to that point differences with the written adaptation why this movie is probably better one of the things i did read about and i think this is the right choice is that the book actually deals with all the characters like you kind of get into their heads a little more like i think there's multiple point of views yes it changes point of view between all the characters this movie very much just sticks with her with her and i think that's a better way of doing of doing the story because it makes so much more sense her choice to light the tower on fire yeah to see why she did that yeah you could see that see that and be like oh she's a monster she just killed all these innocent people but then i think the movie really does a great job of showing you how she got to that point yeah and like she knows she is killing like off the old bits of humanity and like she mourns sergeant parks because he went to go look for her and he was supposed to stay safely in the pod their final conversation is so heartbreaking but such a good fucking scene he kind of reveals a little bit of how he was almost looking for his own child and all the madness yeah and then like he's kind of like why'd you do this and she that's when she's like it's just no longer yours anymore yeah that whole scene is amazing like that kind of is the heart of the entire movie to your point about the book being from everyone's perspectives on one hand i like the characters in this story a lot i don't really have to have all of their backstories i don't really don't. need to know that dr caldwell is especially salty and bitter because they designed these Rosie and charlie mobile labs to have 12 people per 
and she was like the 25th candidate or something. So she like just barely fucking missed out on being able to be part of those crews that were doing that breakthrough scientific work to, you know, solve this whole thing. Yeah. You don't need to know, you know, the fact that Parks grew up kind of a street rat before he got into the military. You don't need to know all these other little nitpicky details per se, because again, the movie is just solely focused on Melanie and you're kind of seeing the world through her eyes or she is generally confused about what she's seeing and she's a little bit overwhelmed and on one hand things seem normal but what is normal right like i love the scene of her wandering through and just trying the doors on all the houses yeah and having like a blast doing that Yeah. yeah and going through the houses and just kind of fucking with everything and observing everything and just trying to figure out what the world was like before I I like that the movie sticks with her more than it has to get into everybody's fucking backstories. You still are given enough pieces of all the other characters to like kind of form the type of person they are or were. Sergeant Parks has one of the best arcs, I think, in this entire movie because he's introduced almost as if he's going to be the bad guy, like very similar to the main bad guy of Day of the Dead. But then he kind of realizes the shit they're in and realizes that Melanie isn't just a monster when they're like out in the wild and like they rely on her. He trusts her to like do certain things for them. They all kind of like develop this relationship with each other. Even Caldwell, as cold as she is, and she really only views Melanie as like a test subject at this point. Even she like has those conversations of teaching her, of telling her like where you came from, how we discovered you. And, like, enjoys that Melanie soaks up any information she can get. And then, of course, Helen is the heart. Helen is the one who still views them as children. I really enjoyed the character work in this movie, but I do think it was the right call to only focus on Melanie. The discovery of the feral children was really interesting, really cool. I thought that was great. And the way that the ending incorporates them and all the children that were at the army base when it fell. And now they're all like working together to make this new society and learn from Helen, the teacher. All that's amazing. Like that whole sequence where she fights the alpha of the feral children with the bat felt very Mad Max even. Yeah, it's brutal as fuck. But yeah, she fucking murders that kid with a bat. Yeah, that is a scene that is not in the book at all. Really? Matter of fact, in the book, she discovers the feral children and wants to keep them secret because she knows exactly what fucking Caldwell's gonna do to them. Yeah. So she lies, tells the adults that she saw a group of junkers, which that is another element in the book that is not in the movie. There are, you said Mad Max a second ago, ironically enough, there are these people called junkers, which are basically just roving bands of marauders, right? Yeah, that that wouldn't work in this movie. The, no. the way that the tone of this movie and everything, that, that would be very out of place yeah so she lies and tells the adults oh i just saw a group of junkers gallagher who's fucking terrified of the junkers immediately ditches the group just to try to get away because he's convinced that they're being tracked that's where he's tricked and killed by the feral kids um and that's when melanie kind of fesses up to knowing about them and then later after justino and parks went out to go find gallagher In that meantime, Caldwell tricks one of the feral kids into coming into the lab and she kills the kid and dissects that kid. And of course, she like kind of finds some basic information, but nothing substantial, you know. So for as much as she's like, oh, yeah, we can do it. We can develop a cure in the books. It's very clear 
it's just not going to happen. She's just going to keep dissecting kids and keep dissecting kids. And she's just never really going to find anything more than what she has already found. To the point that she's dying in the lab and having this conversation with Melanie. And that's where she kind of just tells her, like, there's no fucking vaccine. There's no cure. We're never going to be able to figure this out. You know, I was basically just saying that this whole time so that everybody would listen to me, essentially. She kind of explains to Melanie, like, the second-gen kids and all that, you know, but that's it. Done. And she dies. Yeah, the timing of all that is very different. And she never does believe that it's hopeless. She is blinded by this idea that she can develop a cure if she, like, can dissect Melanie in the movie, that is. But yeah, like it, it is kind of implied throughout the movie that it's just way too late for that. I just think the choices the movie makes based all that is better. Yeah. Thematically, it fits more to me. Another one as well. Parks is actually bitten in the book. He goes out to like find her, gets attacked by Hungries and bitten, and then Melanie like puts him down. Although she does get him to use his flamethrower on the giant spore pod tower first, but then she uses his sidearm to like go ahead and put him out of his misery before he turns. I like the way that the movie kind of plays that out better in the sense yeah. that just the fucking irony of, oh wait, what are you doing here? You were supposed to stay in the I was lab. Looking I was for trying you. to keep you safe. You know, you should have just stayed there. And he was like, well, fuck it. I was trying to find you. And now just the irony of now that he's to a point where he actually cares about her as a person. Right. And like actually sees and acknowledges her humanity um, and actually cares about her is now the point where like that fucking empathy and that heart and that care is turned on him in a fucking horrifyingly ironic way. And now he's stuck in the seed pod apocalypse. Thousand knives when all you need is a spoon yeah isn't it ironic don't you think yeah totally so it's it's definitely one of those things where i think it's just so much more poetic nah he is just the last casualty of this new world order coming in you know he is just kind of the final sacrifice that has to unfortunately be made on melanie's part in order for like the new world to kick in also, too, by the way, the tower that is lit on fire that has all the seed pods is the BT Tower in London. It's a giant tower that overlooks the city and everything. But another image that I totally forgot about for a second, but I think is also fucking horrifying reveal when they're kind of walking through those hungries that are all kind of dormant and they all have the blocker on and they're trying to be careful and not touch them. They see that one lady who's pushing the baby stroller, baby stroller. Yep. Dr. Caldwell has never seen that behavior out of a, a, at least a first generation hungry of like empathy. And like she opens the stroller and of course there's like a rat eating human remains in the the stroller. And that's kind of like her freaking out about that is what causes some of the hungries to go crazy. But yeah, that was interesting. Like they didn't really go more off that idea of empathy, even in the first generation hungries. I think they kind of more use that as like a set piece, get them to run to the hospital because all the hungries are now becoming activated basically. Basically, but I don't think they ever really touched on that idea anymore, just other than that, like, oh, yeah, the second generation are definitely people, right? Was there any more purpose to that scene that that I missed? I mean, basically just that. In the book, there's also a scene where they walk past a hungry who is kind of talking in a very just, oh, McDonald had a fart. 
<laughs> chopping like a body. Yeah, there's a hunger that's just repeating a nursery rhyme, but it's kind of an autopilot, you know? And that yeah. was another like, oh, there's something going on. This isn't just entirely a weird fuck up circumstance kind of thing like there's something actually happening there are exceptions there's some hint of humanity still in here that's just firing randomly couple of other things real quick so the book takes place like almost 20 years after the initial breakdown because this is really at the very very end of we barely have food left there is barely any ammunition left all the vehicles and weapons that we have are completely just fucking falling apart communications are completely shot at some point parks even tells them like we can't reach beacon Okay, cool. Yeah, we'll try to reach him later. Later. Oh, we can't reach Beacon. Um, We haven't heard from them in weeks. You know, and then it's like, oh shit, we haven't heard from them in forever and our communication also doesn't work. You know, so it just gets to the point where you realize like how completely on their own they have been for like a long period of time. It even talks about how like Gallagher wasn't even born. He literally was a child born after the breakdown. So that's all he's ever known is this world. That's even more tragic for his character in the book, at least. Yeah, the movie definitely takes place around 10-ish years after everything has fallen apart. But it's still, like, enough time that nature has reclaimed the city and blah, blah, blah. A couple of things about the production. So this movie had a budget of 4 million pounds, half of which came from the BFI Film Fund, which this was one of their largest investments. Let me guess, did most of the money go to Glenn Close? (laughs) I don't imagine so. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I don't imagine so, but, I mean, she's obviously the biggest star i mean she's a fucking six-time oscar nominee yeah glenn close is like one of the greatest actresses who's ever lived yeah yeah but like Gemma arterton was a big deal for several years she was in a lot of u.s releases a lot of big budget stuff patty considine has also been around for a long time so like there are known people in this movie i've seen both of them in a lot of stuff yeah they are definitely have those people faces yeah the other part of this budget came from creative England, and this was their largest investment, um, which, see, isn't it nice? Other countries that have, you know, state-funded art and you don't have filmmakers literally have put their entire projects on multiple credit cards just to get something made. Yeah, isn't that nice? I know, right? The film was mostly shot in Birmingham, Shirley, Stoke-on-Trent, and two different RAF bases. There was an abandoned hospital that was used because it was, like, overgrown for 12 years you know so it was like the perfect length of time for them to just go in and use this hospital as is they pulled a session nine by actually using like an abandoned fucked up hospital yeah yeah at least for all the hospital stuff you know the rest of it they definitely had to like set dress to be that way they did find some abandoned locations though the weirdest thing is that a second unit team went to fucking Pripyat and shot drone footage there that doubled as post-apocalyptic London. <laughs> yeah, that would do it. So that, you know, like a weird thing I didn't realize about this. McCarthy also claims that Gareth Edwards' film Monsters was an inspiration on the visual aesthetic of this movie, which I could see that. I remember Monsters came out when Lamplew and I were in film school and we watched it because that was a whole big, oh, Gareth Edwards made this fucking crazy monster movie about 
again, like actual giant monsters taking over like this entire giant part of Mexico and then humanity having to build a wall and a barrier to like keep them out and all this. And this was the movie that got made on a $7,000 budget, you know, and it was just one of those, wait, how the fuck did they make this movie? And you see how DIY it was. That movie was kind of a big deal when we were in school, I remember. I haven't seen it since then, but just the way that he kind of used the resources that he had to create this super desolated version of the world. Then he got to direct Rogue One and made one of the probably the best Star Wars post-Disney movie that they put out. Well, more along the lines of monsters, the first thing he fucking made after that really was the new Godzilla. Uh, The 2014 one, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, this movie came out, like you said, in August of 2016 at the Locomo Film Festival, and it wouldn't come out in the U.S. until February of 2017. And this is what I don't get. Again, us talking about, you know, I get this movie is very similar to The Last of Us, and they kind of came out at the same time, but I don't necessarily buy that that's the reason why this movie wasn't a big deal is, oh, this other thing kind of overshadowed it. That's a video game. Yes, obviously, people that play video games watch movies and vice versa, but there's a lot of people who are in distinctly different crowds there. You know, it's not like there was another movie that came out that was a zombie movie that had very similar themes. If anything, I would say that I'm kind of surprised this movie wasn't referenced more because of Last of Us. Sure. And the similarities, to be honest with you. Well, also, too, I'm surprised this movie wasn't a bigger deal because Walking Dead was still in real, real full swing at this time. But this is what I don't get. Warner Brothers got the rights to distribute it in the UK. But here in the US, it was distributed by Saban Films. Really? Like the Japanese Saban Films? Yeah. Fucking Power Rangers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They like formed an actual movie production company in 2014. I watched this actually on Tubi for free. Saban Film was in the like, yeah. introductory credits. I was like, can't be the same one. Yeah. So now that you mentioned it, it totally is. Well, yeah. out of curiosity, I was like, what the fuck? I just watched something else that had this logo on it and i thought for some reason they like literally formed and their first movie was the power rangers movie that came out a few years ago and they've done one or two other weird things since no these motherfuckers put out one movie in 2014 and then five in 2015 and seven in 2016 and then like 11 in 2018 to the point where like just since the beginning of this year it is july so the first seven months of this fucking year they have put out 27 movies this year the fuck yeah they've progressively been putting out more and more but it's all red box It's all red box fodder. It's all titles like Retribution, Bullet Fist, Nightmare, Punch Kid. Like, it's just all that shit. Every other one has John Travolta, Nick Cage, John Cusack in it. There's a shit ton of Mel Gibson movies because they're the only people that will fucking work with him anymore. There's a bunch of Mickey Rourke ones. So I'm looking at the list right now. You know, it's kind of funny, but also a little sad. The movie that they put out after The Girl with All the Gifts here in the U.S. was that shitty 2017 gritty-like Power Rangers movie. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Sabin are known for like the Power Rangers show. That's why it's kind of wild to me that they they put this movie out. Yeah. So I think that's the issue is had Warner Brothers actually distributed this movie in the States, it would have gotten a theatrical release. Yeah. This movie could have made 
actual real money if it had gotten marketed properly in the U.S. and actually had a theatrical release. We probably would have heard a lot more about it. Yeah, it would have done very, very well. I mean, zombies, like we've been saying this whole summer, zombies are still super fucking popular despite i mean it's it's like fucking superhero films as much as people are like god zombies are so overplayed so tired of zombies oh we're having burnout from zombies zombies are still really fucking popular and this is enough of a different interesting spin on that formula that i think this movie would have done very well had it actually been put out but no instead saban films got the rights and they just immediately threw it in fucking Redbox with no marketing. So the movie ultimately only grossed $4 million, which is kind of a shame because this movie could have done way, way better. You know, aside from all the thematic things, that's a lot of the reason why I kind of pushed to do this movie as the companion for day of the dead because this is a movie that like i genuinely feel needs more eyeballs massively underrated needs more eyeballs this is just one that i think a lot of people would fucking enjoy if they watched it because really my only serious criticism or gripe with this movie is the fucking cgi blood and i get it from a safety and budget and time standpoint that is a practical decision that was made even though It doesn't look great, but that is really my only criticism of the movie overall, but it is just disappointing for the movie with this cast and everything that this wasn't a bigger hit. Yeah, it feels like a movie that isn't underrated when you're watching it, right? It feels like a movie that like has its audience was well-respected and all that, but you going through the history and everything and the distribution, like it was underrated. It is underrated. I mean, I I didn't know it fucking existed until like you suggested it as an idea for this summer. So I agree with you. I do think that it needs more eyeballs on it. So hopefully our show can get a few of you to go watch us. It's it's worth a watch for sure. Yeah. Let's talk through the cast real quick. So we'll start with the girl herself, Melanie. She is played by Senia Nanua. One of the best child performances in any movie we've covered, oh, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Great Great child performance in that she's completely unfazed and naive about the entire weight of the situation that she's in. She plays that very, very well. Her physical acting is great. She's a great find that apparently she was literally the last of about 500 girls who were auditioned and they immediately were like, oh shit, this is the girl, period, that we should have just started here, we would have been done. She was 12 at the time and was attending the Nottingham Television Workshop. But yeah, she was in this movie, she was in The Fight, Frankie, and is about to be in a series called The Serpent Queen, which is about Catherine de' Medici. So she is definitely like at the start of her career. I appreciated reading something from the director where, you know, he was saying everybody on set actually treated her, you know, with respect and they didn't treat her like a kid necessarily. And they wanted to be as professional as possible to set the example of, hey, we want you to have a good experience on this. We're not going to be asshole adults. Everybody was very encouraging and they were very flexible to do multiple takes with her when necessary to like really get her to like pull out this character so it seemed like she had a very good experience working on this movie and everybody was very willing to work with this kid you know that was like new to this whole thing all these professionals that have been in a ton of movies were all willing to really 
really, really take their time to like nurture this young talent. So that was very good to hear. Nice. Miss Justino nice. uh, is played by Gemma Arterton. She was in Guy Ritchie's Rock and Rollo, which that is the first thing that I saw her in. She was also in Quantum of Solace, The Boat That Rocked, aka Pirate Radio over here in the U.S., The Disappearance of Alice Creed, Clash of the Titans, Prince of Persia, Byzantium, which is pretty fucking awesome vampire movie, Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters, The Voices, and most recently The King's Man. So she's got an interesting smattering of big blockbuster movies, but a lot of horror titles as well. She has definitely always been kind of an interesting presence as well. Very striking in terms of her appearance, just very interesting actress. Glenn Close, as we mentioned earlier, plays Dr. Caldwell. I don't fucking know what to tell you about Glenn Close. I mean, yeah, you just, know, the big yeah. chill, <laughs> the natural, jagged edge, fatal attraction, dangerous liaisons, reversal of fortune, Hamlet, fucking Hook. She's the boo box pirate, Mars Attacks, Air Force One, fucking damages. She had a TV show that lasted like six goddamn seasons. Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, And then recently she was in The Wife, which she was also nominated for an Oscar again. Her sister-in-law, Deb Close, is apparently like a huge fucking horror fan. Specifically loves zombie shit. So when she was cast in this movie, she called her husband and was like, Yo, so you gotta tell your sister, I got this gig and she's gotta fly out here and be one of the zombies. That's what happened. Yeah, her sister went out, they did her up, and she's one of the featured hungries in this movie. Sergeant Park. Parks is played by Patty Considine. 24-Hour Party People, Cinderella Man, Hot Fuzz. He's one of the two, like, weird detective guys. Born Ultimatum. Really interesting crime miniseries called Red Riding, which is about a series of murders, but you're getting it in three parts over three different time periods. That is maybe the first thing I remember seeing Andrew Garfield in, because he's in maybe the first segment. But yeah, that's a really solid series if anybody wants to check it out. Submarine, The World's End, Macbeth, Peaky Blinders, The Death of Stalin, The Outsider, which I have brought up on the show as well. Um, He is one of the detectives in that show. The Third Day, and he's about to be in the Game of Thrones spinoff House of the Dragon. Yeah, one of his things I saw he was in, he played a supporting role in something called Doctor Sleep. Not the Doctor Sleep. Yeah, not that Doctor Sleep. But from 2002, British thriller, uh, also called Close your eyes. But yeah, that one made me do a double take when I saw that. Gallagher is played by Faseo Akinade. He's done a lot of theater. He's done a lot of Brit TV. He was in The Isle and the personal history of David Copperfield. He was also just recently in Atlanta. So he's very interesting and worth checking out as well. I liked him a lot in this movie. And the last thing I'll mention too, uh, so writer Mike Carey also appears as a hungry in a crowd scene, so that was just like a fun cameo. Do you remember at the beginning, the two troops that were kind of handling Melanie, one of them was female, she kind of had shave faux hawk, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her name was Devani. She is played by Dominique Tipper. She was in Vampire Academy. She's in the Fantastic Beasts movies, and she's one of the main 
characters in the sci-fi show The Expanse, which is really fucking good. She is very good in it. Um, I hope to see her in more stuff, but she is one of those actresses that like, man, since I saw her in The Expanse, like she very much stands out in everything that I've seen her in since. And I did not remember that she was in this movie. It's been a couple of years since I've watched this movie. But seeing her pop up in this, I was like, wait, that's her. Yeah. She is strikingly gorgeous. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, I have definitely, like, always thought that she was just amazingly gorgeous. But she is fantastic on the expanse. So that is definitely worth checking out if you are into sci-fi stuff. So, yeah, last two details I've got, I guess, both pertaining to the books. So, interesting, again, thematically with what this movie and this story does. In the book, Melanie is white and Miss Justino is black. They flipped it in the movie. It, it is flipped for the movie. They cast the entire movie colorblind. They just went in and cast whoever they cast, right? Right. Gallagher is definitely not black that I remember in the books. I keep saying books. It's a book. Well, no, it isn't. I'll get to that in a second. But yeah, they just cast whoever they felt was best. But I think for the thematics of the story, it is much more interesting and it has more bite to it that Melanie is a person of color. Just for the standpoint that so much of what we are seeing in real life, so much of the fucking weird underlying racism behind so much of what drives conservatives behind a lot of their policy making just that entire weird fear of replacement right the replacement theory is what you kind of hear constantly of just it won't be long before white people are going to be outnumbered by all the coloreds and then we won't be able to like keep this nation together because lord knows it's only been the white people that have been keeping this nation together this whole time right that entire idea of this young girl of color is gonna be the new eve essentially for this entire new era of humanity like that's a very provocative image in a very interesting way yeah it is i think it works so much more effectively for the sake of the movie that that's kind of how things worked out i think there's just something that much more powerful about not only is essentially the future new leader of this entire new frontier of humanity not only is it a girl but it's a person of color well it's it's a lot like the happenstance casting of the main character in night of the living dead yeah you know, yeah there's just a new impactful element it's a good way to circle everything back around yeah. to the beginning of this entire fucking experiment this yeah. entire summer, yeah. And that's ultimately, I think, part of the reason why I wanted to do this last as our final movie. Just, it's a good look at where zombie movies are now in the modern day and how they've evolved over time to kind of become this new thing and how we are still all these fucking years later 50 years later using the zombie character as this social metaphor to really kind of dig into like our fears and anxieties and american culture specifically western culture more broadly but zombies are still being used in the same exact way the fears and the anxieties have just evolved over time 
And this is kind of a good final New Horizon look at where zombie movies are now and where things are ultimately going. Yeah. So yeah, this is definitely, definitely worth checking out. Again, the book is really solid. As much as I think the movie, I think, works better, just because you're getting like all the weird little things. You know, the story is still effectively almost the same, but the cinematography in this movie is really good. It's very gorgeous, despite it being fucking rust dystopia, you know? It's a very very pretty movie to look at it's very luscious it's that yeah. overgrown plant life everywhere kind of dystopia i fucking love the score to this movie i absolutely forgot how fucking good the score to this movie was it reminds me a lot of johan johansson's stuff it has a very radiohead kid a era kind of feel to it yeah that's a really good way of describing it yeah, yeah. i really fucking love the score and that's one of those things that you're not going to get when you're just listening to the audiobook or reading the book right so i think the movie is better in the stance that you have all these other craft things that are going into the overall experience but i would definitely encourage check out the book the book is very interesting if you want to like get more immersed in the world definitely check out the book because you get more backstory on things speaking of which carrie wrote a prequel book titled the boy on the bridge and that came out in 2017 did not realize that otherwise i probably would have tried to track it down and listen to it as well before we had this discussion so i can't necessarily speak to it but i am kind of intrigued to do so now so that is also out there if again people want to get more into the world of this story all right well i think that's gonna wrap it up this concludes dead boy summer hell yeah our discussion on the girl with all the gifts uh we are watching if you dare a horror movie podcast you can catch us on pretty much any pod catcher at this time apple stitcher google Podchaser, apple and good pods are probably where we get most of our views so please continue to review us and follow us appreciate all the good feedback we get uh we are at watch if you dare on facebook and twitter for socials speaking of twitter linked at the top of our twitter page and our facebook page for that matter is our spotify music playlist so check that out if you want some spooky tunes yep speaking of tunes shout out to your little brother jesse mansfield aka party gator on Bandcamp. he's also under opossums and big clown he does the bumps at the beginning end of each episode uh so check out his stuff get some good tunes throw some money his way support a local artist and i think that's all i got yeah dude that's it it's fucking over man it's all over it's not over it's just not yours anymore sally <laughs>